Let's take our Bibles, a copy of God's Word, and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. We're considering the sixth chapter, almost halfway through the book. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can use the one that we have in front of you, and that's on page 401. Let's give careful attention to the reading of God's word from Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, uh, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come And let us meet together at Hekepharim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to see you? They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all want to frighten us thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, When I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it and all the nations around, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them, For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, 
And his son Jehananan had taken the daughter Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Thus far the reading of God's word. The name William Wilberforce is practically synonymous with the abolition of the slave trade in England. Uh, Wilberforce became a member of British Parliament uh, in 1780 at the um, old age of 21. Think about what you were doing when you were 21. Uh, Some of you are not yet there and you have aspirations. I'm assuming it's probably not to be a congressman or a senator at 21, yet William Wilberforce was a member of British Parliament. He was one of the youngest people ever to become uh, a member of Parliament at the age of 25. Five years later, uh, he was converted to evangelical Christianity, and he convinced himself he should step down from public office and pursue uh, ministerial endeavors, ministry. He should pursue ministry. Uh, But it was a good friend and mentor uh, and a pastor, uh, John Newton, who convinced him that there was a lot of ministry that could be done within Parliament. Uh, So he agreed to remain in politics, but to do so with, quote, increased diligence and conscientiousness. That, That was his conviction. He wanted to do the work of God in Parliament. And so for the remainder of his uh, life, he was consumed with abolishing what he and other evangelical Christians considered a depraved and unholy business. But his stance uh, on the slave trade was an unpopular one. When he first proposed a bill uh, before Parliament in 1791 for abolition, it was defeated easily 163 votes against 88 votes in favor of abolition. 1791 defeated. Uh, There was vast amounts of money in the slave trade. Its proponents were not about to give that up. And the people vilified um, Wilberforce, uh, his supporters, and their cause. And the opposition became so fierce and so intense that a friend once commented that he expected to wake up any morning to find that Wilberforce, quote, had been broiled by Indian planters or barbecued by African merchants or eaten by Guinea captains. But Wilberforce never backed down. The energetic determination he exhibited at the beginning of his career continued on even to his death. And this is what he said in 1789 uh, during his very first speech on the issue before Parliament. He said, so enormous and so dreadful And so irremediable did the slave trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they may. I, from this time, determine I will never rest until I had effected its abolition. Well, we have to admire uh, Wilberforce for his resolution. It's um, hard to stand behind your convictions. It's really hard to stand behind your convictions when they're met with opposition, especially then when that opposition is fierce. And yet, that's exactly what he did. He stood for what he believed in, despite all the opposition. And in that, we see something of the great leader in Israel's history here in the 5th century uh, B.C., Nehemiah. We see his resilience, his 
perseverance, his determination to do what he believed to be a great work, a work that he was called to by God. He knew he was called to do this work by God, and he was determined to do it. Um, let the consequences be what they may. His mind was completely made up. I was determined I would not rest until I had effected this work that God had called him to. And we are struck throughout the entire book of Nehemiah, but really the focus comes down here in chapter 6. We are struck by the opposition that he faced in uh, completing God's uh, work in accomplishing God's purpose. So consider first with me this evening the opposition to God's purpose. Um, the opposition is nothing new. And by that I don't simply mean that we have already seen opposition in earlier chapters of Nehemiah. I'm talking about opposition to God's purposes is nothing new in Nehemiah's day. It is as old as sin, literally. Genesis Three, uh, we read about the enmity or the hostility or the opposition that is placed between the, the two different tracts of humanity, the seed of the woman, the, the elect seed from which Christ the Messiah would come, or the seed of the serpent, the evil one. So Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. Now, many people rightly recognize this is the proto-evangelion, the first gospel. This is the first declaration of the gospel. And yet it's something else. It is also um, setting us up for the lengthy conflict that will occur until the gospel um, comes in its fullest expression, that is, uh, the first appearance of Christ and then the second appearance of Christ. So when he defeats sin and then when he comes again to rescue us and put an end to it entirely. Until then, there will be this antipathy, this, this opposition, this hatred between um, the, the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Uh, between the forces of hell and the forces of heaven. Why, why do you think that you know, our favorite books and movies always have this idea of good versus evil? It's because that fight is interwoven into the very fabric of, of the world, the fight of good versus evil. And we see it happens almost immediately after that Genesis, Genesis 3 proclamation. In Genesis 4, what happens? Cain kills Abel. Cain, representing the seed of the serpent, murders his brother, representing the seed of the woman. And John talks about this in his first epistle. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was of the evil one. And so he murdered Abel because Abel was of the righteous one. There's that enmity. There's this hostility we're talking about. The unrighteous versus the righteous. It's nothing new. It's what happened with Cain and Abel. It's what's going on here in Nehemiah 6. As Nehemiah was sent to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem, in God's city, it should come as no shock to us that this was met with fierce opposition. And likewise, brothers and sisters, it should come as no shock to you whenever you try to do the work of God that you meet opposition as well. You should not be surprised. John goes on to say in his epistle, Do not be surprised, brothers, 
that the world hates you. This shouldn't be a surprise. Why not? Because God said this is going to be the deal from Genesis 3.15. There's going to be enmity. There's going to be a hatred here. Cain hated Abel because his brother's deeds were righteous and his deeds were evil. And the world hates you for the same reason. If you're a believer, they hate you because your deeds are righteous and theirs are evil. Your works shine light upon their sin. And they hate that. And we're still caught up in this conflict. The world hates the church. The devil has us in his crosshairs. And he will stop at nothing to hinder God's purpose. And we see that in chapter 6, don't we? Look with me here where we see that the devil has mustered his troops, so to speak, and he's stopping at nothing to hinder God's work. Three characters show up again. We've been, uh, we, this isn't the first time that we've uh, seen uh, these characters, Sambalat and uh, Tobiah. Uh, we have come across them a number of times, and as well uh, to them is added Geshem, the Arab. So we heard of them first in chapter 2. Uh, chapter 4, they show up again. When Sembalat, verse 1, heard we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And then he gets Tobiah and the Arabs, verse 7, and who's head of the Arabs? That's Geshem. So he, there's this, this, this group of three bullies who who keep coming together to try to thwart Nehemiah's uh, work. Why, why do they hate him so much? Why, why, why is this such a big deal to them? Why can't they leave him alone? Uh, well, there, there's three groups that are represented. Sambalat represents the Samaritans. Tobiah represents the Am, uh, Ammonites and Geshem, the, the Arabs. So you have uh, the Samaritans, the Ammonites, and the Arabs who are neighboring tribes and nations near Jerusalem. And they felt threatened by the arrival of Nehemiah and his workers because as the walls of the city are rebuilt, they're certain that the intention is for Nehemiah to rise up and rebel against, well, actually against uh, the king whom they are all subject to, and that would be um, Artaxerxes, the Persian king. So you see that in um, verse (coughs) 7. Excuse me, verse 7. This is what they say about Nehemiah. You've set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem that there's a king in Judah. And now the king, that's the Persian king, will hear of these reports. You're going to be in big trouble. And Nehemiah says, you're inventing this. This is a fiction in your own mind. Uh, they, they don't want this work to go forward because they see it as a threat to their own peace in the area. And maybe their own plans uh, uh, that they might be hatching, their own schemes they might be hatching to um, take a shot at the Persian rule that they were under as well. well we read in chapter 4 of how the, uh, the opposition was so fierce that as, they had to, as the Israelites sought to, to build the wall, uh, they had to do so with a sword in one hand and a hammer in the other. Right? They, they, and, and then half of the people who who um, were, were ta- half the people were taken off from building altogether, and they were just stationed with, with swords and, and with bows and arrows to protect the work. That's how fierce it was. But guess what? It didn't work. The, the work continued. They were unsuccessful. So now the, now the building's project's about to be completed. Uh, the, the, the wall is almost up, and they need to try something else. And they're desperate here. Chapter 6, we find Tobias and Baal at Geshem. They're, they're desperate at this moment. And 
They change their strategy. They try uh, three different things, but six total attempts, six total attempts in chapter six to thwart Nehemiah. Did you notice that? Did you pick on pick up on that? Six total attempts. Some were attempts to undermine the work by luring Nehemiah away from the task at hand. That's the first thing they did where they sent a letter or messengers to Nehemiah. Hey, come and let us meet together at Hekephraim in the plain of Ono. This is about um, halfway between Samaria and Jerusalem, about a day's journey. And not only would it have distracted Nehemiah from his work, it would have drawn him into enemy territory as well. So they're trying to lure him away from the task. And they say, let's meet at, at the plains of Ono. And Nehemiah says, oh, no. Really? Okay, so I've been working on that one for 12 years. I preached on Nehemiah 6 back in seminary, and I get that reaction every time. I think it's there for a reason. The place is called, oh, no, and Nehemiah's like, I get it. I'm not going. So he, okay, whatever. Um, That's the first attempt, to lure him away. The second attempt is by maligning his character and reputation. His character and reputation. So the first is to lure him away. The second is to, to um, make it so that people wouldn't want to follow Nehemiah because maybe he's not that great of a guy after all. Verse 5, look there. We read, now they might have sent a letter before messengers, but now we're told specifically they sent an unsealed letter by Sambalat. An open letter. You've read these before, right? Sometimes they're posted as op-eds in major publications, um, or people post them online on Facebook, and it says, you know, an open letter to uh, President Biden from the so-and-so, and and it's, you know, I want everybody to know how I feel about this, not just the guy I'm writing to. Uh, It's a sort of kind of holding the people that you're writing the open letter to accountable. I want everybody to know how I feel. That's what Sam Ball does. He writes an open letter. An open letter back then essentially is public property, and that meant anybody whom the messenger came into contact with was free to read it. That meant that the Israelites who are working for Nehemiah are free to read this insinuation that his motives are actually untoward, that he has corrupt motives, dishonorable intentions, that this is all about his own fame. Verse 7 again, or verse 6, according to these reports... You wish to become the king, and you've set up prophets to, to proclaim you in Jerusalem. There's a, there's a new king in town. And they said, look, this is, this is going to be bad. And they act like they're being Nehemiah's friend. They said, come, let's take counsel together. This is, this is bad news. Ahasuerus is going to come after you. Let's meet together and let's figure out how we can massage this message so that uh, he doesn't come and decapitate you. That's kind of the way they present it. But really, their point all along is all we really want is for his workers to hear that his intention is to become king and to lord his power over them. Third thing that they do. Uh, the enemies under, uh, attempt to undermine Nehemiah by intimidating him. So they try to draw him away. They try to uh, malign his reputation. And they try to intimidate him. In verses 10 through 14, um, we read of this scene where Sanballat and the others had bought, um, had essentially paid off 
one of the prophets of Israel to intimidate Nehemiah with the threat of death and trick him into walking into the tra- uh, into a trap. So um, they're in the house of uh, Shemaiah, that's the prophet, and he says to Nehemiah, let's go into the house of God, to the temple, and we'll close the doors of the temple because people are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight, he's saying. And Nehemiah re- replies, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? Uh, this is very interesting, right? They have a trap placed. Let's lure him into the temple. We'll shut the doors and we'll kill him. And the reason Nehemiah doesn't do it is because, he, because of the high view he has of God. He says, if I go into the temple, I'm unholy. I'm going to die anyway because I, I don't belong there. Should a man such as I go into the, the holiest of places and expect to live? It's a poor thought out uh, scheme of theirs to try to lure him into a place to kill him when he says, even if you didn't have guys there, I'm going to die. So I will not go. But they're trying to intimidate him. They're trying to make him afraid and hoping that that will get him to give up on the work. That's the opposition to God's purpose. And just hearing that opposition is exhausting and overwhelming. But imagine living through it. Imagine how exhausting that would be. And yet it's here we witness, secondly, the determination of God's people. First, the opposition to God's purpose. Secondly, the determination of God's people. Even though enemies pressed them on all sides and at every turn, the work never stopped. The Israelites never gave in. And this is largely um, due to the leadership of Nehemiah. I want you to see the resolve that he displayed throughout this entire ordeal, beginning with verse 3, which to me I think is is one of the most um, stirring lines in the Old Testament. Uh, They're threatening him, and he says in verse 3, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. As the enemies of God try again and again to lure him from his post, to distract him from his labor, to prevent him from completing his mission, Nehemiah remains resolute. He is positively determined to accomplish the task God has set before him, because he recognizes this task truly as great work. He's not saying, I'm great stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, what I've been called to is important. It's critical. It's crucial. This is awesome stuff in the, in the sense, the old sense. It, it fills, it's filled with awe. Because it's God's work. And because it's God's work, it's a great work. And I'm not going to leave a great work because it's God's work. And I'm not going to leave God. That's what he's saying here. His face is set. He won't divert. Oh, that we had that kind of resolve. When we are faced with opposition from Satan, from sin, the world, the flesh, that we would... Be steadfast when we encounter trials and temptations that we could say with Nehemiah when when the devil tries to throw us off course. No, no, I'm doing a great work. I'm doing God's work. God has given me something to do and it's so much better than what you want me to do. I am doing a great work and I will not leave it. I cannot come down from it. Now, sadly, that happens far too little. We cave into our desires 
We cave to our temptations. We give in to peer pressure. We'd rather deny the faith and maybe be mocked by school classmates or coworkers. We don't want to be marginalized in our certain circles. We don't want to be shunned by our family. And so often we give up on that great work, which we've all been called to, namely fighting sin, sharing the gospel. We give up on that great work and we come down. And that's exactly what Satan wants, friends. I want you to know you can be sure that the strategies he's using in Nehemiah 6 are tried and true methods, and he's using them today still. And he's using them on you if you're a Christian. You have a target on your back if you're a Christian. You're doing the Lord's work if you're a Christian. And the devil hates that. And he wants you to stop. He'll distract you. Right? Try to lure you away. He'll malign you. Call into question your reputation. He'll try to intimidate you. Make you afraid. The same tactics. And I want to just say that that should remind you to pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders. Leaders in the church of God who are facing opposition um, from, from the evil one. I mean, it's becoming harder and harder to be a Bible-believing Christian in this day and age. And that's not to mention what it would be like to be a leader of Bible-believing Christians in this day and age. Pray for your elders. The devil is going to use distractions and disappointments and discouragements to keep them from doing the work they're called to, which is, is to lead you. Pray for them. The devil wants us to be afraid. I want you to notice that, that is, that's the big weapon here. I think that's the greatest weapon is fear. Because Nehemiah seems to point that out a number of times. Verse 9, he says, They wanted to frighten us, thinking our hands will drop from the work and it won't be done. He, he recognized they're trying to make us afraid. What does he say in verse 13? For this purpose, he, that's the false prophet, was hired that I should be afraid. We've all experienced this fear at some point or another. What's fear? Uh, fear is that voice that says, what will they think? What will they say? What will they do? What will happen to me? What if this? What if that? What ifs? That's the language of fear. It's fear of man that so often causes us to fall away from God and become ensnared in sin. So how do we combat that fear. Is it by turning inward? Kind of going monastic, you know, not going outside, not engaging in the world and the culture, closing ourselves, closing ourselves off from the outside world? Is it by changing our external circumstances? Is it by wishing the fear away? No. I want to give you the simple answer, one that I hope you can put into practice even this week as you maybe face fear in the work, in doing the work of God, we combat our fears simply by doing this, by taking our eyes off of that which makes us afraid and instead turning them to Christ. It really is as simple as that. Looking away from the thing we're afraid of and looking to the God who conquers all our fears. Looking to the Savior who said, yeah, in this world, the things you're looking at, you're going to have many tribulations and many troubles. But fear not, I have overcome the world. 
Look to him. Look to him. And that's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah looks to God. Did you notice that? It's wonderful line here in verse 9. They wanted to frighten us. The enemies of God wanted their uh, hands to drop in fear. But what does Nehemiah say in verse 9? He prays, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Turns to God. So the question is not if we have a God that we may turn to when we're afraid. That is not the question. If we have a God that we may turn to. The question is, will we turn to that God that we have? When we're afraid, will we turn to him? Matthew Henry says, when in our Christian work and warfare, when we are entering upon any particular service or conflict, this is a good prayer for us to put up. He's referring to verse 9. This is a good prayer for us to put up. I have such a duty to do, such a temptation to grapple with. Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. You look away from what you're afraid of, and you look to the God who overcomes your fears, and who can strengthen you to the work that you have to do. Uh, Carrie Ann's grandfather, Bryce's dad, I never had the privilege of meeting him. Uh, my grandfather, nonetheless, and he was a, uh, a church planter and pastor um, his whole life. Uh, he had a difficult calling that he never shrunk away from. He Planted in rural Oregon, um, dozens, dozens of churches uh, in his lifetime. And he had this phrase that he was fond of saying. And um, at his funeral, it was said that it was something of a, a life motto for him. He says, put your hands on the plow, keep your eyes on Jesus, and keep moving forward. How did this man go through all the conflicts and, and all the opposition to plant dozens of churches? Well, that's the answer he would give you. I put my hands to the plow. I kept my eyes on Jesus, and I moved forward. Friends, there are innumerable things in this life that will cause us to fear if we allow them. But turn your eyes from those things and look to Jesus. And what happens? What does the hymn tell us? The things of earth will grow strangely dim. Mark five thirty six, Jesus said, Do not fear, only believe. So pray with Nehemiah that your hands would not tremble, but that they would be strengthened to accomplish the work that God has given you. Well, we've seen the opposition to God's purpose. We've seen the determination of God's people. Finally tonight, let's consider the culmination of God's plan. We see Nehemiah's prayer is answered. And in fact, after only 52 days, the walls are completed. We read at the completion of the walls earlier in the story um, in chapter 3. But then we kind of went back in time and we saw how it came to be. So now this is the second time we're told that they're completed in the narrative. It's verse 15. The wall was finished. The prayer is answered and here we see something very ironic. Who's afraid now? Not Nehemiah, not God's people. Verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid. And in their fear, they started to think of themselves not that highly anymore. They felt greatly in their own esteem. And why are they afraid? 
What does the text tell us? Is it because they say they, they, they saw the industrious abilities of the Israelites? They saw that they had, they had judged them wrong. Israel was actually really strong and really mighty. That Nehemiah really was a force to be reckoned with and they, they just had gotten it wrong. Were they afraid because of the people? No. What does it say? Look at verse 16. When the enemies heard of it, the nations around us were afraid, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It's Jehovah and his reality, his presence with the people that causes the enemies to be afraid. That's what we want too. This is how it should always be. That when we work as unto the Lord, that the fruit of our labors will point to his glory and not our own. People will be awed by the God we serve and not the service we render. Did you hear that? We want people to be awed in fear of the God we serve, not the service we render to him. And I think what causes this awe, it could be translated awe or wonder, dread. I mean, all those words are appropriate, fear. I think what causes it is the, um, the realization that this God's ways can never be thwarted. They've been trying to do a lot, and now I think they finally realized it. When Yahweh says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his annoying, uh, anointing, excuse me, <laughs> anointed, and saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Uh, we read something about this earlier in the service, and one of my kids asked me a question early in the service, Psalm 59, verse 8. The question was, does God laugh at people? Surely God doesn't laugh at people. Why not? Well, because that's mean. It's mean to laugh at people. And I said, I'll explain to you after church, and I forgot. Well, actually, I could explain it right now. Because we're told the same thing in Psalm 2. What does it say in Psalm 2? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Why does God laugh? Is he being mean? Is he poking fun? No. It's an outburst of, if it's not irreverent to say, disbelief on the, God, on the part of God. <laughs> Did they really think they could do this? When God laughs at his enemies... It's done from a position, not of cruelty, but of sovereignty. I'm king, and your pathetic attempts to dethrone me, the only appropriate response is for me to laugh at them because they are, in fact, pathetic. The attempts of God's enemies will always be in vain. They're in vain here in Nehemiah 6, and God laughs at Symbolet and Tobiah and Geshem from trying to prevent the walls from being built. Because it's impossible. Good try. You can't do it. Do you not realize I am the Almighty? Do you not realize, do you not realize that I made the heavens and the earth? Do you not realize I made you and now you try 
to overcome me, God laughs because it is laughable, because it is stupid. It's appropriate that he laughs at these attempts. No effort can keep his work from completion. God used Nehemiah in mighty ways to fulfill his plan to rebuild the wall, to return honor to the nation, to show that God was present with his people, to bring the Israelites out of exile and bondage, and to reestablish them in the land. God, above all, they used Nehemiah to show that nothing, nothing can hinder his sovereign plan. And of course, what we are reading about in this book is just a small part in God's bigger plan of redemption. As Nehemiah secured victory for the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent, he foreshadowed a coming greater conflict and a greater victory. You see, the culmination of God's saving plan, the fulfillment of that promise in Genesis 3, comes to a head in the life of Christ. Here, the serpent and the Savior face off. Here, the devil pulls out all the stops to hinder God's plan and disrupt that great work of salvation. And as Jesus wanders in the wilderness for 40 days and nights, the, the, the serpent approaches him and he tempts him three times. Remember, Sambal and Tobias, six times they try. Three times for Jesus from the devil himself. And you remember one time he tries to provoke Jesus by saying, if you're the son of God, then you can turn these stones into bread. You got to be hungry. I know you haven't eaten in a long time. He's saying to Jesus, he's saying, you know, you've been out here for weeks. You haven't had much to eat. You must be hungry. Why not a little bread? Why not? Just, just, I mean, it's surely, you're, you are the ancient of days. You, you're the eternally begotten son of God, God of God, very God of very God. I mean, it, would it be a whole lot for you to take a, a stone and turn that into a nice loaf of rye or sourdough? I mean, surely you want it, but he doesn't do it. Why not? Couldn't he? Well, certainly. Certainly, we've seen him perform greater miracles than that throughout his ministry. So why didn't he do this miracle? Well, those miracles were always for the benefit and the blessing of others. But, friends, you need to understand the moment, the instant that Jesus uses his divine power for himself, he's no longer our savior. Because in order to be our savior, he needed to be our substitute. And in order to be our substitute, he needed to be uh, fully representing our human condition. He needed to be tempted as we are. He needed to know our weakness. So if Jesus used his spirit-given powers for himself, he would, in fact, be saying he couldn't bear to be human. That being hungry was too much. And Satan knew this. You can imagine just how determined he is to get Jesus to slip up on this. He's thinking, if I can just get him to capitalize on some of that divinity and use it for himself, the whole plan is ruined. He's no longer the seed of the woman. The plan would be thwarted, and yet Jesus was determined. And we see the same thing again at Calvary. As Jesus is pinned to that tree, and he's writhing in agony. You remember what the people say. They jeered him. Oh, you who would... uh, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And they say, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Could he have done it? We see it's the same methods as the devil taunting Jesus with his divinity. If you are the son of God, come down. Could he have done it? Yes, he could have. 
He could have called 10,000 legions of angels to come in and destroy those people and take them up to glory. He could have come down. But what does he say? I am doing a great work and I will not come down. And that great work was the salvation of your soul. The minute, the minute Jesus uses his divine power for himself, he is no longer our substitute. And with no substitute, no savior. And with no savior, we have nothing that keeps us from the devil's grip. Nothing that keeps us out of hell. But he hung, he bled, he suffered, he remained our substitute. And he did it for us. Jesus did not come down from that great work for sinners like you and me. We didn't deserve it. No, no, we didn't deserve it. It's a wonderful blessing that words can't capture. And words fail me up here now to try to express that blessing to you all. The undeserved grace and mercy of God, that his son would come willingly and die, even though he didn't have to. He could have come down. But he stays, and he dies. He stays, he suffers, he bleeds, and he dies. Not because we deserve it, but because this is the plan of God, and the plan of God can never be thwarted. And praise God that God's plan is to save us. What a wonderful Savior we have. If you're a Christian, then you can trust you have a part in this unbreakable plan and you soon will share the victory of Christ. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What do we have to fear then? What reason is there for our hands to drop and tremble? What reason is there for us to give up on the things that God's called us to? Why give in to the demands of the world, the flesh, and the devil? We are more than conquerors in Christ. And since God is for us, who could be against us? So, friends, I know that in this cultural climate in which we live, faithfulness to God's purpose is not always the easiest thing. You will labor hard and receive very little reward for your work. And perhaps instead of reward, you will just receive scorn and derision. I I doubt you'll have the outcome that Wilberforce had. After pushing for abolition for 18 years, he finally made his breakthrough. Do you remember that vote when he first uh, brought it up? It was easily uh, struck down, 163 against 88 for 18 years later. The bill has passed 283 votes in favor of abolition, only 16 against. And on that day, the House of Commons erupted in applause, and Wilberforce's face streamed with tears as members of Parliament gave rousing speeches in his honor. I just want to let you know, you will probably not get rousing speeches in your honor, if you seek to live a life of godliness in this day and age. But guess what? The work we're called to, we're called to for God's glory, not for the praise of man. More than a speech made by a friend in front of your peers in parliament, this is what you need to hear. This is what should motivate you. The words of your loving Savior saying, well done good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your plan, which nothing, nothing can thwart. We thank you that we see that not only in Nehemiah, but we see it writ large in the life of Jesus Christ. We see that even though the devil and his forces tried to bring him down from this great work of salvation, he was determined, and your purpose was accomplished. Now, in gratitude, would we set our hands to do your work and to do it for your glory? We thank you, O God, that we belong to the church, the church for whom Jesus sought from heaven above and gave his life for Would we now work and labor in this church for his glory? We pray this in his name. And all of God's people said.